Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're looking at only three verses together this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may not so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I didn't put a main point up here because it would be cheating, because the main point of this text is Christians should love like verse eleven. Verse eleven, for the reasons given in verse twelve, which is not a very helpful main point to remember. But it is simply a short passage. That is fairly direct, despite having some different elements in staccato style exhortation. Paul returns here to the idea of love. If you remember in his transitional prayer, he's already mentioned this. Chapter 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Uh, And that's exactly where he starts off here. Now concerning Philadelphia. Or brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write you. If that comes off a little bit odd, <laughs> because he says you have there's no need for anyone to write you, and then what does he do? He he writes them on it. It's a it's a rhetorical device it's called a paralepsis. It's like when it's when you draw attention to something by mentioning that you don't need to draw attention to it. It's like someone saying, I don't have to remind you that, so on and so forth, right? It's the same thing he does in 2 Corinthians 9. It is superfluous. I don't need to. It's extra, excess, excuse me, for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. And then what does he go on and do? He writes them about the ministry of the saints. Or even three verses later, verse 4, if they they don't have their, their gift prepared here, talking about the collection for the church in Jerusalem, Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, find that you're, you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So other words, saying you would be perhaps even more humiliated than us. That's why if it feels a little bit odd, that's what he's doing here. It's a soft, it's a soft exhortation. But then he gives one reason that, though he's going to write them anyways on this idea of love, that might justify his lack of need for doing so and largely explains why he says it's already happening there at the church in Thessalonica. He says that we don't have any reason to write to you on this, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And this little phrase is huge in terms of what Paul is doing here. You remember, and by the way, that's why we read Jeremiah chapter 31. 
We, we mentioned in chapter 2 the initial strangeness of Paul comparing the sufferings, persecutions of the Thessalonian church with the churches in Judea. It's like roughly you know, Europe, what we would consider Middle East. Why is he possibly doing that? Why not choose a closer church? Well, it's because he was trying to incorporate them in a larger biblical theological story where the gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, but that they are a part of. And here we get another taste of just that, because the promise was that one day the people under God's rule, in God's covenant, they wouldn't need to teach one another in one sense. They wouldn't need to teach them to know God because, in the words of Isaiah 54, 13, they would be taught by God. They would be taught by God. And apparently, what Paul is doing in what is otherwise a fairly forgettable little phrase is indicating that he understands the Thessalonians to have experience in being a part of the fulfillment of these promises. They are part of this biblical theological story. Notice he's not talking about New Testament scripture that they were taught by, which didn't exist in terms of what he's referring to, not in the same way. He's not mentioning about something he already taught them right here. Because he, he, he does that explicitly, as we already said. And, and he will do that again even in this passage. He's talking about being taught by God. He is referring to a deep kind of knowledge wrought by the Holy Spirit that changes the nature and motivation of love itself. Because that's what this passage is going to be. You have the Holy Spirit teaches you love, and then what love looks like. That's the macro structure of this passage. Holy Spirit love of God and neighbor. And remember, from last time, Christian love has a different DNA and serves a different purpose than generic, abstract, cultural love, which might be something like some blend of commitments, feelings, goodwill, but Christian love, as we saw last time, is explicitly tied to holiness, for example. Christian love is, is distinctly different. It's not just you have love here, love here, love here, and, and the Christian takes the generic understanding of love and just orients it Godward. No, 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 no. It's a different thing. It's a different thing defined on its own terms within its own narrative. And as he already has, he clarifies that they are already doing this, but then includes an explicit example of not just their love for one another, okay, but their love also for the folks in the region of Macedonia. For that indeed, verse 10, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. There's lots of speculation. How are they loving the churches in Macedonia? Answer, nobody knows, but... The best suggestion is that they were helping financially. They were the uh, metropolis of the, the mother of Macedonia, the metropolis of Macedonia. Uh, as we're going to see, their church was not a rich church, but they were benevolent people, and they did have some wealthy patrons like Jason who would put people up. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 explicitly mentions the extreme poverty of the Macedonian churches. So likely what's going on here, likely the way they are showing love amongst them, themselves and to the people in Macedonia is by aiding them in extreme poverty in a variety of ways, but particularly financial considerations. And then he makes his first exhortation here. It's a general exhortation. Then he's going to give three specific exhortations. 
first exhortation, he says, this love, okay, that you have been taught by the Spirit, I want you to increase in it more and more. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Uh, we see that same language back in chapter, uh, excuse me, back in verse 1 of chapter 4, right? About pleasing God. The end of verse 1. You receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, so that you do so more and more. And the idea is not, you're not trying hard enough. You just need to try harder. Come on. That's not the idea. The idea is keep up the same momentum as you continually mature in how to direct that loving momentum. And as he focused on sexual purity in the first half here, or the first portion, he's going to give three related but distinct staccato-style exhortations here that give shape to loving one another and all in a manner that pleases the Lord. So all this is kind of all this sticks together. Okay, all of this is one coherent whole. And that is the critical context, let me just re reiterate, for this exhortation that can't be understood well outside of it. What Christian love looks like that pleases the Lord and establishes one in holiness implies these things. Cultural understanding of love does not imply these things for the most part. I'm telling you, this is something different. Cultural understanding of love does not, is not, holiness is not baked, in, baked into it. It's a separate thing. You could be loving, but maybe not holy. You could be holy, maybe you could be loving, I don't know, uh, in, in the cultural terms. But the idea is these things are all baked together. And in that phrase that I've used before, I forgot who said it, but it's not mine. I'm trying not to plagiarize here. That the law is love's eyes. Without law, love is blind. The idea is, I, I, I desire to follow Christ. I have a yearning to follow Christ. Yes, let's go. And then it's like, well... What does that look like, though? What does that look like, like expressed in life? This is what it looks like right here. This gives eyes to it. Here's the tracks. You have the momentum. Yes, you have the Philadelphia, the brotherly love. Yes, the spirit-wrought knowledge. Yes, here's what it looks like in your situation to actually live that out. It's not just feelings of goodwill, affection, and things like that. It is teased out specifically like this. That's the first general exhortation. Increase in it to be understood as continue on with the same kind of momentum, but here's how you can actually increase your love by doing it differently in a way that will please God and establish you in holiness. That's the idea. And what does he say? The first that he says, the first thing he says is to live quietly. Verse 11, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly. And notice I said live quietly. It doesn't just say to live quietly. It says make it, make it your ambition is literally what it says. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 15, 20 to say that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel uh, where it has not yet been preached. So it's not just a nice idea. These, these, these and, and this kind of characterizes all of these exhortations, not just the first one, because of that, that's the only verb that gets introduced before all these other infinitives. And to aspire to live quietly, and then we're going to get a couple more infinitive phrases. All these should, not just you should, here's an idea, it's make it your ambition to do this, like Paul made it his ambition to preach the gospel on these places. Be about this. Don't just talk about this. Be about this, is what he's saying. Be ambitious. For this, make it your MO to live a quiet life. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to live a quiet life? Well, it certainly does not mean speaking in a quiet voice. It certainly does not mean being an introverted person in general. Uh, First century philosopher Philo, Jewish philosopher Philo, he contrasts the person who lives a quiet life with the person who we could assume lives a loud life. Listen to how he characterizes it. He who spends his days meddling, running around in public, in theaters, tribunals, councils, and assemblies, meetings, and consultations of all sorts, he prattles on without moderation, fruitless to no end. He confuses and stirs up everything, mingling truth with falsehood, the spoken with the unspoken, the private with the public, the sacred with the profane, the serious with the ridiculous, not having learning, not having learned to remain quiet, which is the ideal when the situation calls for it. And he pricks up his ears in an excess of bustling busyness. That's what it's like to live a loud life. Someone that you just want to look at and be like, just stop. They're like, what? Literally everything. Like, just stop. Stop. It's a life characterized by misplaced ambition, misguided zeal, overextended presence, in a lot of different areas, and because that person believes that they have something to offer, right? They don't think they're wasting their time. They don't think they're doing this. They have a high view of their discernment. They really think they're being a contributor. And that spurs them on all the more. And Paul says, do not do that. It's as simple as it gets. Make it your ambition to not do that. To live a quiet life. He says, this uh, this picture over here of the loud, that is not what the Christian life looks like. For God, for others, the world, for no one, that's not what love teased out looks like, the loud life. Particularly in the Thessalonians' context. Don't be that person who causes everyone's eyes to roll when they walk in the room. Oh, there they are again. Oh, they were at the last meeting I was in, giving their strong opinion. Okay, excellent. We appreciate that. Make it your ambition to live first, a quiet life. Second, to mind your own affairs. Some debate about the background context of why he's saying this. But in the Second Thessalonian 3 passage that Laura just read, he does explicitly refer to those who are busybodies, which is, if it's not a word that you're familiar with, does not refer to someone just uh, who doesn't know how to sit down or rest or something, but someone who's a meddler. They're a prying person. They're particularly nosy. That is a busybody. It's someone who loves getting into other people's business. They love getting caught up in processes, activities that really have nothing to do with them. In fact, one commentator goes as far to simply say, Paul is urging them just to keep a low public profile. Just keep a low public profile. He's saying, listen, if it doesn't concern you, Pay it no mind. You don't need to be embroiled in all these civic controversies, and you don't need to be pursuing all of this and being the champion of this cause there in Thessalonica and this cause there in Thessalonica and this party there in Thessalonica and doing X, Y, and Z and getting involved involved with all of these different things. Mind your own business. Stay in your own lane. That's what he says. Do not be a meddler. That's the second specific exhortation. He gives the third and final exhortation, which carries the greatest emphasis. It's last in the list. It's accented explicitly by the phrase, as we instructed you. 
And it's also justified by two reasons. So this is the one that's kind of building to this. Building to this addresses a group of folks there in Thessalonica that we also hear about again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The idol. He tells them to work with your hands as we instructed you. So now he is saying, we already told you this. Work with your hands might sound like a metaphor to us, but for the original audience, they would have almost certainly understood it literally. To, under, to, to, to be referring to manual labor, meaning that most of the folks, uh, but certainly not all, were lower class people. And manual labor would have been the kind of work that was open to them. It was a kind of labor that was seen by the Greco-Roman elite as uh, demeaning. That was below, that was below them. You hired someone to do that kind of work. But Paul is telling them, no, 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 that's not how this works. You work with your hands. Now, certainly someone like Jason, if you remember from Acts uh, uh, 17, who put Paul uh, and, his, and his friends up there, was not, a, was not a manual laborer. He was a wealthy man. Paul wasn't suggesting that he abandon that or take up arts and crafts or something. He is simply addressing the majority of folks in the church uh, who would have been lower class people, and that's the kind of work that would have been available largely to them. Um, but why is there this idol group at Thessalonica to begin with? You might think, well, the person who doesn't have a lot of money can perhaps least afford to not do anything. There is a group apparently who quite literally needs to get to work, what Paul's saying. There's multiple suggestions for what exactly is going on. The patron-client relationships that were possible where a lower-class person would kind of yoke themselves to an upper-class person. They're saying, well, maybe the Christians were taking advantage of this arrangement. Um, I, I don't think that's particularly plausible. First of all, being a, a, a client of a patron involved a lot of work. I mean, you were serving them. I, I don't think that that would be even considered idle. You had to show up in public, maybe work with their campaigns. Uh, you didn't just walk to your mailbox and get a check. It wasn't idle work. But second of all, there's no reason in the text to think that's what it is either. The other explanation, I think, is much more persuasive and largely because it is in the text of Scripture. And that is the idleness came from a, a, an expectation that Christ's return was just about to happen. Why think that? Well, first of all, this right here, and then the other exhortation against idleness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, bookend a very large section about the return of Jesus. Which means there's, when you see that in the New Testament, very likely there's something, the two are related. What bookends, what's in the middle, there's some kind of relationship there. Second, for the size of the letters, both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians include extended discussion of the return of Christ. Clearly, this was a big deal in Thessalonica. We don't know exactly what they, well, we know we're going to find out a little bit more of what they were thinking as we read on. But, but the return of Christ was a big deal. It was a central concern. And then finally, we can know by looking at other religions of the time who thought the end of the world was near, frankly, we can look at our own time. Everyone remembers the people predicting the return of Christ and the end of all things, right? Every time someone gets up there and silly and makes some kind of prediction, you see these people in the news, it's like, well, nothing matters anymore. I quit my job as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a whatever, because uh, Christ's about to return. Why would I pursue a career path 
Nothing matters anymore. I'm just... And so that seems to be what is going on here. Why would I work? Why would I pursue my career if Christ is, uh, is, is about to return? You can't have certainty about it, but that, that's the strongest suggestion in my opinion. He tells them, you need to get to work. You need to work with your hands. But what's more important than how someone is working in particular um, are the principles embedded in verse 12. Embedded in verse 12, because he gives, after giving him these four exhortations, he gives two reasons to tease out that last instruction to work specifically. The first is an appearance to outsiders. Verse 12, why should they work with your hands as they were instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders? So here again, we give Paul, Paul gives these occasionally. Here is an explicit occasion where Paul does not give us the option of saying, I don't care what unbelievers, which would be outsiders here, think about me. They're backwards. They don't understand my worldview. They're committed to a different this, that, and the other. I don't care. He says, he explicitly says, I want we one of the reasons that you are to do this is so that you may walk properly before the watching world. They are supposed to perceive you in a particular way. And what is that way right here? Right here that way is they look in and say, "Whoa, the, the Christians, they, they they're hard-working folks." I mean, the Christians really get to work. They're not a bunch of freeloaders sitting around taking advantage of people. They're not lazy. They're not idle. Okay, they're really putting their hand to the plow. That's what the outside world is supposed to see. That's supposed to be the observation of people that have a desire and a disposition to work. Now, just to be clear, every commentator clarifies, as they should, that Paul is not talking about people who are disabled, people who are elderly, which no one would have expected to be working with their hands anyways. What he's, what he's talking about is an able-bodied person um, who has no desire to work, who is slothful for one reason or another, who is idle, and someone who doesn't want to put their hand to the plow to earn a living for themselves and their family. That, that's what he has in mind here. That's what he has in mind. I want you to do this, first reason, so that you can walk properly before outsiders, and then second, and that you be dependent on no one, understood as financial independence in the context this is keeping with Paul's own practice, isn't it? Remember when he was ministering there, he would not accept their money. And in Corinth, it was the same thing. And it kind of getting a little awkward. I'm accepting money from other people, but, but not you all. We do receive here what I think is a general exhortation in the Christian life. Is that uh, one should have financial independence based off their own work. That is what the goal should be, the desire should be. Again, same caveats as last time about those who are disabled, those who are particularly elderly, those who cannot work. But the principle is the desire and disposition to do so. One commentator says it very well. Listen to this. He says, to, to the point about being dependent on no one, he says, this does not imply an insular or self-centered disregard for others since this would violate the principle of loving others. Paul is instead highlighting the necessity of personal responsibility. Philadelphia means that Christ's followers, that is to say brotherly love, will not wrongly take advantage of the kindness of fellow believers, but instead will live as best as possible 
in a self-sufficient manner. Uh, I think it makes clear a point that some people, if, if you said it in certain contexts, people would say it was unthoughtful, it was dismissive, maybe they would just say it was too American or something, but given the fact that it is in the Bible, that can't be the case. Paul says, to the extent that you have the ability, you and your family should seek to stand on your own two feet financially, meaning not being dependent on someone else to finance your life. That's the idea. It's not ruling out partnerships, not ruling out roommates, and anything like that, okay? But what he, again, he is ruling out is someone who has the ability to earn a living for themselves and or their family, and who instead of doing that, indefinitely chooses a life of idleness and leisure while someone else's work finances their life. That's the idea. That's the, that's the idea here. And it doesn't matter the, the justification. In, in this case, it may be, well, I don't, I don't see a career path here if Jesus Christ is returning. He is still saying, you need to work and you need to provide for yourself so that you are dependent on no one. The world is watching here. No one is to be a financial parasite with no aspirations. All the caveats again included. What's the, what's the, what is the exhortation here? To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands for two reasons. Work so that you may walk properly before outsiders, that you may be dependent on no one. That is what love wrought by the Spirit teased out looks like, Paul says, and that's what he exhorts the Thessalonians to be about. Now, I just want to briefly, in, in application of some of these things, talk about these three elements. The first one being this quiet ambition. Make it your ambition, your aspiration to live a quiet life. I've read a lot of the, quote, leadership literature and 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 maximizing your potential and all the rest. I've never, ever, ever seen anyone a chapter on being ambitious to live a quiet life. Ever. I've seen a lot of self-promotion. I see a lot of here's how to get your name out. Here's how to do you the best or something like that. And there's some good principles in a lot of those books, but this is certainly different. You know where people tend to live a loud life nowadays? Social media. A social and political nightmare Paul could have never imagined. Um, because now everyone has a public platform where you can force your views to be perceived by everyone. Imagine what you would have to do to have a public platform in Thessalonica. You would either have to be very rich or wealthy, or just go to the market and start yelling and screaming. And now, okay... But now you can have a platform to communicate things and shove your thoughts before the watching world right there with your thumbs. I wish I could say it's just the world's problem. But brothers and sisters, there are so many Christians who live a loud, loud social media life. What is their loudness associated with generally in the church? Politics and heresy hunting. They've got something to rant about with every passing piece of legislation, every new restriction, every, every election, every candidate 
every piece of breaking news, there they are. There they are to help you think well about it. There they are with unwavering confidence and unshakable opinions to announce to the world what they think and to help people think about things as well as they do. Similarly, you have a set of folks who are the self-appointed theological uh, policemen and women of social media who are ranting and raving about this, that, and the other heresy on the other side of the country or the other side of the world that no one that they even know is even affected by. They don't have anything to do with it. They don't stand to influence anyone who's a part of it. And yet, here they are. Here they are addressing it. Where from the outside, you might look in and be like, why does this person even feel like they need to weigh in on this? Why? In the spirit of this exhortation here, particularly in social media, I'm just going to, please do not be a loud, obnoxious, dead horse beating person who believes that they are doing the church and the world a service. Live a, seek to live, just ask yourself an application here. Do I have a quiet, not to be confused with silent. Not to be confused with not pointing out error. Not to be confused with not having a voice. That's not what I'm saying. Quiet. A quiet social media presence. I didn't even say not prominent. Quiet in the way we've characterized it here. Don't be a social media loud mouth. Second, living in your own lane. This is obviously related to the first. Mind your own affairs. Let me just say, there is a particularly direct word here for people who just love to be in the know. What's going on at this church? What's going on with this person? They're the person who might feel like they don't gossip themselves, but they definitely don't mind hearing it. It gives them some kind of social or psychological sense of superiority, or maybe some senses even social safety to know things that no one else knows. They're in the know. They're the kind of person who doesn't want to be in a conversation where two people know something and they don't. They want to be in the know. Oh, that's because it concerns them, right? No, 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 no. It doesn't have anything to do with them. They just want to be in the know. Paul says, knock, knock it off. Mind your own affairs. Stay in your own lane. Why do you care? Why do you care about stuff that has nothing to do with you, that you can't do anything about, Okay? And that you don't influence, you don't have a stand a chance of influencing anyone uh, affected by it. Again, we have the social media disaster. Where you are called to be in the know actively by ads and this or that and this or that thing. And things are just thrown up before your face. And you are called to be in the know because you know someone's going to say something about it. And you don't want to say, well, I have no idea. I'm out to lunch. Again, the topics, politics, church life. And there are so many people who spend so much time reading and imbibing and getting riled up or emotionally devastated by things that have nothing to do with them, things they can do nothing about, and things that they stand to influence zero on. Why? 
Why would you spend your time imbibing all of that? Why invest so much time in something like that? Why is this person even weighing in on this? There's a pastoral version of this as well. You know, you have to apply a sermon to your own heart before you preach it. And I'll say that oftentimes people will ask me, sometimes they're in our church, but oftentimes they're not. Oftentimes they're not. About this and that pastor, or this and that church over there. What's John doing out in California? What about Doug up in Moscow? Did you hear what Tim said up at New York City? Folks, I, with, a, with kind of a caveated nuancedness, I want to say, I don't care. I care to an extent that people who I am tasked with shepherding listen to and affected by those things. But I don't have any general commission to be a pastor of the American church. I'm not a pastor at any other pastor's church. I'm not in a pastoral fraternal with any of these other pastors that y'all listen to on all the podcasts. They don't have white space on their calendar waiting to see if I'm okay with the plans that they're implementing in 2023. Hold on. We really want to do this, but we're waiting to see what Tyler says. Okay? I don't have any responsibility to them. I have no ability to influence them. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, as far as I'm aware, excuse me, um, in many cases... What they say, uh, people evaluate it, but they're capable evaluators of things. Uh, I just, I'm not overly concerned about that stuff. I read as a casual reader because I need to know what people are watching and looking at. But, it, but, but, but none of those people, brothers and sisters, are the pastors of this church. This is my lane. My lane, right here. These folks, not those folks. God bless and keep those folks, but they're not folks that I have any responsibility for whatsoever. I hope those pastors are great, but I don't have any connection with them whatsoever, and so I really just don't care. Listen, I have enough challenges in my own heart and soul, in my own family, in our own church, to spend all of my time doing those things. Okay, And you probably do too, to spend your time focusing on your lane, right where God has called you to focus on those particular things. And Paul says, be, be about those things. There's plenty enough to mind in your own lane where you can mind your affairs and take up your time. Mind your own affairs. Live in your own lane. Finally, we are made to work. This exhortation against idleness I think there's a more general exhortation here because of the reason that is given, and that's this. Uh, because we want to walk properly before outsiders, no one, regardless of your household arrangement, who makes the money, who doesn't, who works outside of the home, works inside of the home, that no Christian should have a reputation as someone who is idle, lazy, and averse to work. Now, if you can't work, that's a different story. Notice how I said, I said averse to work. You can't work, you can't work. But there's a problem with someone who has no disposition. I don't have any aspirations to work. I don't have a desire to work. I just love mailing it in and living off of other people's finances. That's a, it's, a, it's a heart issue that I'm talking about here, folks. Not, not a physical condition or how much money's in your bank account. Now, you could be working in the home. You might be working as a volunteer. You might be working as a student. But the driving point here is that in Paul's thinking, there isn't space for an able-bodied person sitting around on permanent vacation because they love ease. This is what Amos indicts the women for, uh, these, this particular set of women here in Samaria. In Amos chapter 4, he calls them cows. 
He says, hear, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. There are these rich women who are oppressing people, telling their husbands who are bringing home the bacon to bring them some more wine while they're at it. It's, I, I love getting tipsy and oppressing people. Yes, let's do it again the next day. His criticism here isn't because they're not in the workforce. It's the kind of indulgent, lazy life that they're living as they oppress the poor. That's the problem. And so here's the more general exhortation. Here's the last exhortation I'll leave you with in application. If there were a hidden camera installed in your office, your classroom, your, your, where you do homeschool, there in your living, whatever it is, and the world looked in, okay, would they see an able-bodied person who is regularly idle and lazy and who made excuses for it? Would they see someone who is regularly, keyword, idle and lazy as someone who does the bare minimum? I do the bare minimum all the time. And I just love ease and I love sitting around. I love sitting around. Listen to what Spurgeon says here. He says, idle Christians are not tempted of the devil so much as they tempt the devil to tempt them. Someone else said something very similar. It says, the devil tempts everyone, but idle people tempt the devil. Whew, folks. Folks, folks. The idle mind, the idle lifestyle is the devil's playground. I have a friend um, who... who uh, is a teacher, and so he's off during the summers. And every single summer, he says, this is the hardest part of the year spiritually. I have, not, I have nothing to do. I'm idle. Satan loves to prey on the idle person who's trying to justify their idleness by a ton of different reasons because they need to be able to sit with it well no one, no one wants to say that they're you know, just being idle or being slothful or whatever. But the, but the idea is that temptation lurks. So maybe that's a question to ask yourself. Do you tempt the devil to tempt you on account of your idleness? When you sit there on your phone just scrolling, doing nothing or doing whatever else. And I'm not going to let this point die the death of a thousand qualifications by talking about Sabbath and rest and what about if I was exhausted that day or sick. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let the point hang as I've made it. Only you can answer that question in your own heart. And remember, everyone, it doesn't matter what it, it does not matter. Everyone fights the sluggard within. Every single person fights the sluggard within. There is no temptation that's not common to man. Everyone, no matter what, Fights a sluggard within. The only question is where it tends to show up. Maybe for you, it doesn't show up at work. You really hit the bricks hard. Put your hand to the plow hard, and where you're lazy is relationally. We're going to talk about that more later. Maybe the relationships is where you coast. Maybe the domestic sphere is where you... Where is it that you love ease, where you tend to be idle and perhaps make excuses? Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your own hands so that you will walk properly according to outsiders. Be dependent on nobody. Let's pray.
God, we are thankful that we, like the Thessalonians, are taught by God. That we have been taught to love and that we have a scripture that tells us what love lived out looks like in the wash of life. So we are not left guessing. God, we, we know that we fight slothfulness. We know that we have a desire to sometimes be in the know, not because it has anything to do with us, but because of something it can bring us psychologically, socially, something. Where I pray that we would have the candor to ask ourselves and the courage to give an honest response where we find our own heart indicted in some of these things and where, where we can repent and embrace the grace of the gospel and the forgiveness offered by Jesus. Lord, pray you would be merciful to us. And if this is a blind spot, would you, be, would you, would you show brothers and sisters all across this room where, what pockets of their heart perhaps these are blind spots? Lord, I pray that you would help me stay in my own lane when there are so many people who would love to suck me into theirs, other churches, other congregations. I pray that I would be faithful. I pray that these brothers and sisters would do the same. In the name of Jesus, amen.